Here they come. Right now, they're gathering from hospitals all across America for Talk 10 Tuesday. They know there's important news and information just ahead. Don't miss out. Come in, sit down, and log on. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and co-host Dr. Erica Reamer. Here now is the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, Chuck Buck. Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 317th edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today by ICD University. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular, and I say very popular, Dr. Eric Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Eric Reamer, MD, Incorporated. Good morning, Erica. And a very fine good morning to you, Chuck, and everyone out there, too. Yes, indeed. It's the first day of spring, too, we understand. Uh, we're going to continue our reporting on cardiology, especially since physician documentation impacts hospital mortality rates for acute myocardial infarctions, and that's why we have invited Dr. Jeffrey Epstein to be on our broadcast this morning. He's going to report on how to improve this issue. Looking forward to his report. Indeed. And someone who writes extensively on cardiology coding is Terry Fletcher today. However, Terry's going to be reporting on coding supervised exercise therapy, SET. So, Erica, get set for set. <laughs> Glenn Krauss is standing by with the Talk 10 Tuesday CDI report. That's right. And by the way, Glenn and Dr. Epstein, who's going to be on our broadcast later, uh, co-authored a paper entitled Physician Documentation Impacts Hospital Mortality Rates for Acute Myocardial Infarctions. It certainly does impact mortality metrics. And our friend Stanley Nackamson is with us today to report on the latest regulations coming out of Washington. Indeed, it's always impressive to have Stanley on the broadcast. He seems to have a plethora of regulations to report. And we have other headline news to report as well. So now let's check in with Lori Johnson, who is at the news desk. Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University. Inviting you to register now to learn the five steps to conquer spinal fusion confusion. It features Lori Johnson on Wednesday, April 25th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. Here now is the aforementioned Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck and Erica. Happy spring and happy HIP week. This morning I'd like to do a deeper dive on the Coordination and Maintenance Committee meeting of March 6th and 7th, 2018. The final agenda for PCS included 13 proposals. CMS has asked for input for code creation of these three procedures. Irreversible electroporation, IRE, which is an ablation technique to destroy liver and pancreas cancer cells. The benefit is that this technique does not damage healthy tissue. This technique has been used on other areas, but for now, the codes have been requested for liver and pancreas. The proposal includes the addition of new qualifiers, which specify the destruction methods, including IRE. The second, insertion of the remediphrenic nerve stimulation system, is the treatment of severe sleep apnea. The implanted device includes pulse generator, sensing lead, stimulation lead, and patient programmer. There was, a, there was much discussion at the meeting whether the creation of a new device value is needed as this device seems to be a neurostimulator. The proposals include the addition of a new qualifier to the table 05H or to create a new technology code. The third procedure is cell suspension autografting, which re requires the harvesting of a split thickness skin sample and the creation of cell suspension, which is applied to the skin. 
The proposals for this code include a new qualifier to Table 0HR to capture the cell suspension or the creation of a new technology code. One procedure that seemed to have suffered from, a, from the changes in fiscal year 18 is transfer of preface for reconstruction. For fiscal 18, Table 0HX body part value A was revised from skin genitalia to skin inguinal. This procedure treats urogenital anomalies where they transfer skin and foreskin, which is the preface. The transfer root operation is missing from the male reproductive system, zero V. So a workaround that has been used is these procedures being coded from codes from zero VQ table, male reproductive repair, and zero TQ, which is urinary repair. This proposal is to resolve an unintentional error by adding table 0VX, which is male reproductive transfer. There is a handout under the handout tab, and I have an article that will be published March 27th on all of the ICD-10 PCS proposals. Don't forget to comment and help with the development of the new code set. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Laurie, very much. That was Laurie Johnson. Laurie is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. It's Tuesday. It's March 20th. It's the first day of spring, as we said before, and you're listening to the 317th edition of Tucked In Tuesday. Stand by. Tucked In Tuesday is brought to you today by ICD University. The instruction for coding hypertensive heart disease in the 2018 ICD-10-CM official guidelines for reporting has many wondering, are we supposed to assume a disease has a causal relationship when it has not been documented by the physician? Like it or not, the guideline tells us yes. What does that mean for coding staff who have been conditioned to code to the highest level of specificity? To find out, join the ICD-10 Monitor exclusive webcast, Assumptive Coding for Heart Disease, Avoid Coder Confusion. This webcast featuring National Coding Authority Terry Fletcher comes your way Wednesday, March 28th. Register to attend. Simply click on the rotating ad on the ICD-10 Monitor homepage or call 800-252-1578, extension 2. Now is the time for a regulatory segment on Talk Dead Tuesdays called Reg Watch, and it features healthcare industry expert Stanley Nockerson. Stanley, good morning. Hey, what's the latest coming out of Washington? Oh, uh, a lot of interesting ideas uh, for the next uh, oh, six to nine months. Uh, uh, Chuck, uh, at the uh, HIMSS conference a couple of weeks ago, uh, CMS and, and uh, HHS announced their My Health eData initiative, MY, capital H E L T H capital E data. It's either my health E data or my healthy data. I'm not sure how we're going to pronounce that. But this is actually led out of the White House, their Office of American Innovation. The idea is to, is to increase patients' access to their medical records with technology, and it's a government-wide effort, including the Office of the National Coordinator, NIH, VA, um, and CMS, and they are also urging the private sector to increase interoperability, and we'll be seeing rules and regulations coming out over the rest of the year about this. I think the, the key item here is that they want to give patients access uh, to their claims data, including their 
uh, coded information, their uh, diagnosis and procedure codes. So this is going to make uh, the accurate uh, coding uh, of records even more important. Well, I'll give you an example of what uh, CMS is doing. They announced their Blue Button 2.0 initiative. Uh, Blue Button 1 enabled uh, individuals to sort of go and get a list of their uh, Medicare claims and other information. Now they have developed uh, uh, what's called an API, uh, the application interface that will enable uh, apps on phones and other services to actually access that Medicare data and other patient information from the MyMedicare.gov website. So they've already got a number of uh, app developers working on this. You'll be able to download electronically your Medicare claims and some other information so that you can take them and transfer them, again, electronically to additional physician offices. And as I said, uh, CMS is urging, and the government is actually urging, all private sector health plans to do the same kind uh, of work. So this right now is claims information that they're working on. Uh, so I, I think you'll be seeing a lot more phone apps. But the way that CMS and, and ONC and others are going to make this happen, we'll see in regulations uh, uh, over the years. So I think it's pretty exciting in terms of uh, you know what we're going to be seeing and using our phones for in, in Medicare data. Uh, CMS also announced a, uh, an overhaul of their meaningful use program that we've all been dealing with, both uh, uh, physicians as part of MIPS and, uh, and hospitals over the past the number of years. They understand that uh, there's a lot of burden, and many stu studies have shown the administrative burden uh, of meaningful use is, is higher than the actual savings, so they're going to completely overhaul it for hospitals to reduce, um, uh, again, the burden, and they will be overhauling the documentation requirements for evaluation and management codes in the physician EHRs. Again, a direct impact on, on, on our folks, so, um, you know, we want to make sure that people are aware of that. Um, and then, um, you know, some of the other items... Uh, uh, that they talked about uh, in terms of uh, MIPS changes, um, and this is part of the uh, the Budget Act. Uh, although you know we we look at the budgets as sort of big documents that are financial, um, they often include a lot of provisions. So the the Budget Act that um, was passed in February uh, had a number of important changes for MIPS, in, including excluding excluding Medicare Part D drug costs increasing the flexibility for scoring and reducing the weight given to the MIPS cost category, um, and also some clarifications in providing meaningful feedback on proposed alternative payment models. So we'll be seeing a lot more information coming out from CMS that directly impact uh, a number of our provider listeners, and I'll certainly be happy to uh, report back on that uh, as these uh, come up. And uh, I think it's important that our uh, users uh, and our providers keep keep aware of all these things that are going on. Chuck, back to you. Thank you, Stanley, very much. That was Stanley Knoxon. Stanley is the founder of Knoxon Advisors, LLC. We are pleased to welcome back to Talk 10 Tuesday, nationally recognized coding expert Terry Fletcher. Today, Terry reports on coding for SET, which is Supervised Exercise Therapy. Good morning, Terry. So let's get set and let's talk about SET. Thank you, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. 
So until recently, a significant barrier to peripheral artery disease patients, PAD, and their participation in supervised exercise programs, SET, was lack of medical insurance coverage. However, as of May 2017, and now a change request of this year, March 2nd, and fully implemented coverage policies to start July 2nd of this year, CMS will provide coverage for supervised exercise therapy for PAD patients with ischemic leg symptoms. This newly available reimbursement improves access to supervised treadmill therapy and is expected to increase participation in SEP programs by PAD patients. Clinicians should be prepared to refer patients with PAD for supervised exercise therapy and should be familiar with characteristics of effective exercise programs. They should also be familiar with Medicare's policies regarding coverage. According to Society for Vascular Surgery, the main symptom of peripheral artery disease is intermittent claudication. This is an achy, crampy, tired, and sometimes burning pain in the legs that comes and goes. It typically occurs with walking and goes away with rest due to poor circulation of blood in the arteries of the legs. Intermittent claudication may occur in one or both legs and often continues to worsen over time. However, some people complain only of weakness in the legs when walking. The usually intermittent nature of the pain is due to narrowing of the arteries that supply the leg with blood, limiting the supply of oxygen to the leg muscles, a limitation that is felt especially when the oxygen requirement of these muscles rises with exercise. I think you can see where I'm going with this as far as medical record documentation support to refer a patient to an SAT program. SET involves the use of intermittent walking exercise, which alternates periods of walking to moderate to maximum claudication with rest. SET has been recommended as the initial treatment for patients suffering from intermittent claudication. Because patients have had limited access to SET per CMS discussion, endovascular revascularization procedures such as angioplasty, stenting, and atherectomies have continued to increase. Because of this, CMS issued the national coverage determination to cover SET for beneficiaries with intermittent claudication, and the updated 2018 policy is as follows. So Medicare will allow up to 36 sessions over a 12-week period. For the beneficiary to be covered, the SET program must consist of therapy sessions lasting 30 to 60 minutes, comprising a a therapeutic exercise training program for PAD and patients with claudication, must be conducted in a hospital outpatient setting or physician's office. So that would be place of service 19 or 22 or 11, not a, phys- not a physical therapy office. Must be delivered by qualified auxiliary personnel to ensure benefits exceed harms and who are trained in exercise therapy for PAD. They must be under the direct supervision of a physician or a mid-level provider, so a PA, a nurse practitioner, or clinical nurse specialist, who must be trained in both basic and advanced life support techniques. Beneficiaries must also have a face-to-face with a physician responsible for PAD treatment to obtain the referral for SET. At this visit, the beneficiary must receive information regarding cardiovascular disease and PAD risk factor reduction, which could include education, counseling, behavioral interventions, and outcome assessments. Providers should report the code 93668 under peripheral arterial disease rehabilitation for these services with appropriate ICD-10 codes as follows. So I-70.211, which is atherosclerosis of native arteries of extremities with intermittent claudication, right leg, all the way to I-70.718, and make sure you remember your laterality. So these are atherosclerosis of unspecified type, of specific type, all the way down. Now, there are more reimbursement and program specifics that we will bring you in webinar format on how to implement these services compliantly for your practices please checking the MedLearn Media and the ICD-10 Monitor website for the date. This is a value-based service for your PAD patients as well as a potential revenue opportunity for your practices, so you don't want to miss out. 
Dr. Raymer, back over to you. Thanks, Terry. That was Terry Fletcher. Terry is a healthcare coding consultant, educator, and auditor. Chuck? Thank you, Erica, and thanks, Terry, very much. And you can read Terry's reporting on set in today's ICD 10 Monitoring News. Here now with the Tucked In Tuesday CDI report is Glenn Krause, who challenges the current thinking about the role of CDI. Good morning, Glenn. Yeah, good morning, Chuck and everyone. I, I recently started a new position as a CDI manager here in Las Vegas, and wanted to share with you some thoughts and ideas as I have gathered from the first few weeks of the program. It's been very, very, very interesting. Uh, I'm, you know, a major pivotal, pivotal factor in my intrigue in joining this organization was the newly created vision of the CDI program. It really was the message of the hospital administration and the HRM director who oversees the program. I, uh, we are all too familiar with the current vision, goals, and objectives of CDI programs related to reimbursement, capture of CCs, MCCs, risk of mortality, severity of illness, HCC capture, DRG optimization, and so forth. Obviously, I'm not disputing the need for focus upon these crucial elements as an integral part of CDI processes. As the end of, as, as a, at the end of the day, the hospital must t- maintain its continuing operations, and it depends upon sufficient cash flow and net patient revenue to maintain itself as a viable ongoing entity. On the other hand, uh, on the other hand, the vision of CDI must take into account and incorporate uh, more highly essential points aside from reimbursement. So what should the vision of CDI look like to be able to make its mark and achieve real meaningful improvement in documentation that is sustainable while best serving the crucial role of facilitating enhanced communication and patient care? And I really uh, I've learned in the la- you know in the last three weeks that emphasizing communication of clear, concise, consistent, and contextually correct patient care that tells a, uh, a true patient story is so is 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 a is a message that physicians really uh, I think subscribe to. I've been out on the floor talking to physicians. I've met with residents. I've scheduled several resident uh, knowledge sharing uh, sessions on best practices and documentation. And uh, and and what I've learned from talking to physicians is rather than say I'm here. Uh, I'm the new CDA manager. I've I really focused on okay, uh, finding out what the physician's real pain points are in documentation, uh, listening very keenly to what their message is, and 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 thinking about how to tailor our program to meet the needs of the physician, as opposed to vice versa. So you know, the following statement from the medical center's uh, chief operating uh, officer kind of was music to my ears. He said, "Quote." Um, I'm looking for you to create an effective outcomes-based CDI program. We have a CDI program now in theory, but not practically speaking, that produces any meaningful results. So that was really a kind of enlightening to me. And here's what I come up with in terms of a new paradigm in CDI that embraces the right vision and mission for all the right reasons, which I've outlined in my article, but I want to repeat. The new paradigm of CDI is defined as affecting the achievement of complete, consistent, clear, organized, and accurate medical record documentation, sufficiently reflecting and reporting the physician's clinical judgment and medical decision-making. And CDI supports positive outcomes in patient care, quality, cost, resource consumption, fee-for-value, patient reimbursement, and revenue cycle processes. 
This new paradigm requires a wholesale shift in our mission, goals, and objectives of any CDI program. Our goals, objectives, and mission should be to improve actual processes of documentation as opposed to task of diagnosis, striving to achieve meaningful and lasting change in physician and behavioral patterns of documentation that really optimally reflect communication of patient care, regardless of the stakeholders, certainly not including just third-party payers and coding and billing. So that's kind of what I have for today. I would encourage you to read my article uh, and turn it back over to Erica. Thank you, Glenn. Sounds like you've got a big job ahead of you and you've got a good handle on it. That was Glenn Krauss. Glenn has a new position as Manager of Physician Documentation Improvement at the University Medical Center of Southern Nevada. Chuck? Thank you, Erica. And Glenn, thanks very much. And by the way, you can read Glenn's outstanding report. It's called Why Oftentimes CDI Goes Off the Rails. It's on the ICD-10 Monitor E-News right now. As we reported at the top of the broadcast, physician documentation impacts hospital mortality rates for acute myocardial infarctions. To report on this subject and to offer guidance on how to improve this issue is our special guest this morning, Dr. Jeffrey Epstein. Good morning, Dr. Epstein. Welcome to Talk in Tuesday. So what's the root cause here? We now have a study that shows that good documentation leads to better clinical outcomes. 30% fewer deaths in patients admitted with non-ST elevation MIs when documentation was good rather than poor. 3% mortality versus 4.5% mortality. That's one to two patients for every 100 patients admitted with a non-STEMI, and we know that's a very uh, common condition. That study is from the Archives of Internal Medicines, August 2008, and its title was Medical Records and Quality of Care in Acute Coronary Syndromes, Results from Crusade, Crusade, and it was from Duke University and University of Cincinnati Medical School. The effect in this study was so highly significant and so noteworthy that, in my opinion, all physicians caring for patients in the hospital should at least be aware of this study. They need to know that their documentation can save lives or cost lives, and we need to make physicians aware. So how do we do it? And how do we do it in a fun and engaging manner where they're appreciative, yes, actually appreciative of our efforts and the information we bring to them? Well, this is my recommendation. Get a copy of the article that Glenn and I wrote, and you can get this through our website or through Chuck, and also get the three articles mentioned in our article, especially the article about the non-STEMIs from the Archives of Internal Medicine. Ask your doctors to read our article and the MI article, just those two, and then have the other two articles available if they ask. You read the articles and form your own opinions about the articles and be ready to discuss with the doctors. Ask them what they think of the study and what they think of their criteria that was used to judge the quality of the history and physicals. Do they believe that better documentation leads to better clinical outcomes as suggested in the study? Why do they think documentation mattered in the study? Tell them you're wondering whether your hospital mortality rate can be reduced with better documentation and then follow up with them after they've read the articles, have lunch with them and discuss their thoughts. Be humble and appreciative of their help Ask them what next steps they might suggest, and then ask if they'd continue to help you. Watch their eyes light up as they get deeply engaged in helping, because that's what doctors do. We love to solve problems, and we love to help. So let's get back to the study. How does better documentation lead to better outcomes and fewer deaths? Well, it just makes sense, and here's why. The more the team is aware of the specific causes of the symptoms and the specific causes of the findings, the better the team can be alert and prepared for complications common to those conditions. 
To support this notion, in another study that's highlighted in our article, we showed that being alert to certain warning signs of impending cardiopulmonary arrest can prevent those arrests and prevent ICU admissions and deaths. The main point is that lives can be saved by better documentation alone, and it's not just about revenue, not just about case mix index or severity of illness or expected mortality rates. It's about saving lives. It's about documentation, saving lives, and saving lots of lives. In addition, better documentation has no adverse effects and costs nothing. Now, you may think that it costs the doctor's time, and I'm glad you brought that up, because actually, the way we teach documentation, it actually saves the doctor's time. They spend less time documenting. There's a return on investment for saving them time, and we all know that doctor's time is money and doctor's time is expensive. So, in summary, deaths can be deaths can be prevented by documentation, by good documentation, and this news is huge. If reducing death matters to us, then the quality of physician documentation matters to us as well and should matter, matter to the doctors that take care of our patients in the hospitals. It's important that all doctors know this, and you can help to get the word out. Our next article, or our next talk, is going to be on how to document MI. The type 1 MI, the type 2 MI, the troponin leak, what's the difference, does it matter, and we have ways to teach and doc so that they can get it right and do it efficiently and easily. So thanks, Chuck, for having me, and let me toss it back now to Erica. Thanks, Jeff. Uh, that was Dr. Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, I think that the one of the reasons why uh, good documentation actually improves outcomes is also because the patient's um, when, when you're thinking about the patients before you do your documentation, that's when you really come to make your diagnoses and can make excellent plans. Uh, so I really agree with what you're saying. Um, Dr. Epstein is the medical director at Peak Annual Wellness Center in Lakeland, Florida. Chuck? Thank you, Erica. And Dr. Epstein, thanks very much. We look forward to having you back on the program. We look forward to reading your article in next Tuesday's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor Reduce. Erica, what's on your mind this morning? First of all, happy hip week and happy spring. Um, the other day, while talking to my dear friend Kathy Merchland, who heads up the Documentation Excellence Program at Kettering Health Network, I had an inspired idea which I wanted to share with our listeners. My husband is an abdominal imaging radiologist, and radiology departments have a set of communal cases which they use for educational purposes. I want to teach a resident what the gas pattern of a bowel obstruction looks like. I have hundreds of examples, some rare, weird case which they may never see again that would still make for a good case conference, no problem. The urologists want you to bring cystogram examples to teach them, easy peasy. My brilliant idea was that we should accrue a file of cases which we can use to educate physicians and clinical documentation specialists alike. If the CEDASs spontaneously contribute cases, you should grab the documentation and put it in the file prior to the providers responding appropriately to queries, if possible. If there are audits which, miss, uh, which find missed opportunities, you can keep the details and pick the examples out of the EHR as needed. If you have a new CEDAS, it could be a fantastic training tool. You give her an account number targeting a specific condition and let her compose a practice query and give her feedback. If you're invited to a service line staff meeting and you want to make slides showing creative ways folks have avoided documenting malnutrition, covered. I would set up a spreadsheet with the demographic, uh, the demographic data so you can look up the documentation if you need to, but I would 
um, either copy and paste or take snippets to make it easy to use rather than having to enter the EHR every time. You should have a way of cross-referencing it under several different topics. You might have an example of severe sepsis from MRSA being coded as sepsis organism unspecified, which also has documentation of altered mental status, which needed to be queried to determine if there was metabolic encephalopathy, a twofer. You could have examples of excellent documentation, too. So if you need an exemplar, you don't have to go searching. Does your institution already have something like this set up? If so, I'd love to hear from you about your method. No point reinventing a wheel. If anyone has a good template and process they are willing to share, maybe we'll have you on the program and we'll write it up and we'll publish it online. So that was my brilliant idea. Thanks, Chuck. Back to you. We only have about a minute left, but a real quick question for you, Terry. uh, Take a look at Susan's question the way she wants to know. Are physician therapists allowed to provide SET? Yeah, so I, I saw both questions there by Susan and Sandra. So physical therapists are allowed to provide SET, but they have to be under the direction of a physician. So they cannot do that uh, in a physical therapy practice. They would have to actually work for a physician in a practice or work for a hospital in an outpatient setting, which leads me to Sandra's question, is there a requirement to have a medical director for the SET program provided in a hospital outpatient department? Again, Medicare is very clear. This has to be physician-directed and supervised by either a physician or a mid-level provider. So I would say yes as far as the the term medical director, maybe not the title per se, but it does have to be under the physician's direction. And that's who would get credit for the billing, not the physical therapist. Very good. That's going to be the last word. Thanks very much, Terry. And uh, that's going to be a wrap for the 317th edition of Talk Cat Tuesday. And Eric and I want to thank our guest today, Terry Fletcher, whom you just heard, Laurie Johnson, Glenn Krause, Stanley Knoxon, and our special guest this morning, Dr. Jeffrey Epstein. We hope you're going to be right back here next Tuesday for another edition of Talk Ten Tuesday. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck speaking on behalf of Dr. Erica Reamer and everyone here at Talk Ten Tuesday and ICB-10 Monitor. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for being with us. Talk Ten Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.